Goedemorgen. Is everyone okay? Yeah, good. Good. We we are going to do something slightly different this morning. Um, as Len said, we we were. Oh, I've got a wire coming out the back of my head. That's just my power battery. So if it if I just suddenly mute, it's because I faded out. The uh, robot wasn't overnight. Uh, yeah, we've been working through a series uh, earlier in the year through the book of Exodus, uh, and then we took a little bit of a break through the summer and spent five weeks working through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Um, and we did that for a reason, because uh, we wanted to start the autumn term by having two weeks of prayer and fasting. Whereas the church, we just came together and said, because for, for, for many people, the autumn term is kind of, it's like a start. Kids go back to school, people start university, people move into the city and start new jobs. Uh, and it's kind of a fresh starting point in the year. And we thought the best way to, for us to start a new term was to by coming to God in prayer and devoting a couple of weeks to him. So we don't have any small groups running for the next two weeks. We're going to gather together on Tuesday evenings to pray together. You're all, all very welcome to come and join us. And we thought over the summer we'd spend five weeks on a Sunday just talking about prayer. Uh, and then this week is kind of an, ex an extension of that. Um, we'll get back into Exodus next week. But I just wanted to spend just one more week um, we're, not, we're not in the Lord's Prayer, but in the next part of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about fasting. So we're going to spend a little bit of time, just about five, ten minutes, talking about fasting. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time doing something slightly different. We wouldn't normally do this on a Sunday, but I'm going to do a dance. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, sorry. I am a very good dancer, but we won't be doing that. People said, no, I, no you're not down there. Oh. Yeah, okay. I'll talk to you later. Uh, so we're going to spend the rest of our time just talking a little bit about, um, about the, city, the city we live in and what that means for us as a church and what it means for us to be devoted to God in a city like this. Um, sometimes it's just helpful just to take a stop and just remind ourselves of the context we're in and the God we worship and the sort of church he's trying to build and talk a little bit about our kind of vision and mission as a church in this city. Does that sound good for you guys? Great. I'm glad to hear it. So what we're going to do is, uh, is we're going to talk a little bit about fasting just to start with. Um, it may seem like a slightly unusual thing to talk about, but uh, as we see in this passage in Matthew 6, which will come on the screen in a moment, Jesus says right at the very start, he says, when you fast, he's not, Jesus is almost assuming that his believers, his followers at some point will fast. He's not saying if you fast, he says, when you fast. And then he goes on to say, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let me just pray. 
God, we thank you so much that you are a powerful God, you're a holy God, and you're also a God who has called us, for those of us who are Christians, believers in you, you've called us into relationship with you. And that means we can come to you in prayer. We can come and talk to you as we would to a father, to an earthly father. We can come and talk to our heavenly father. We can bring our worries and concerns, our hopes and our dreams. And when we pray, we can come and have our hearts realigned, drawn back to you. And that's what we want to happen when we pray and when we gather together, we want our hearts to be drawn back to you. And we pray, I ask in your name this morning that as we look at these passages, as we talk a little bit about who we are as a church, that Holy Spirit, you'd be at work amongst us, changing us, molding us more and more into your likeness, helping us to follow you. Jesus, we want to run after you. Where you're going, we want to follow. And we pray you'd help us to follow you this morning. Amen. Amen. Sometimes fasting in the culture that we live in, as people would understand it, perhaps looks a little different from what it talks about in the, in the Bible. Um, one of the most famous people who fasted was Gandhi, who in, uh, through the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, uh, living in India and Calcutta, he fasted regularly in protest against the British Empire. People like, you know, my heritage and he was doing the right thing, and he was, he was trying to overthrow and kick out uh, by a peaceful protest. He was trying to make a statement, make a point. He would fast for some day, three or four days, up to I think his longest was about 20 days. Uh, and he had numerous fasts again and again, where particular things happened, and as a protest, he would fast. Um, not just against the Brits, but in all sorts of different other circumstances, there was a time in the 1940s where there was a clash in his city between Hindus and Muslims. So he started fasting for day after day. It went into weeks. And it had a profound effect on the city. People uh, started to come to him, um, and they, they, they came and they laid their knives and machetes at his feet and, and were in tears. And his actions, just by fasting, he changed the higher, entire culture of what was happening in the city and he was making a political point he was protesting he was demonstrating but for us our fasting isn't the same as that it's not a protest it's not an attempt for us to twist God's arm or to assert our own will when we pray when we fast it's not like a last-ditch attempt to get our own way actually what we're doing is we're devoting time to let God twist our hearts <laughs> to start a kind of protest, a revolution inside our own souls, to draw us back to him, to draw us back in line with him. Fasting and prayer really is, it's the ultimate act of dependence on God, saying, God, I'm utterly dependent on you, even though I so, uh, almost because I feel so weak and useless, God, I'm dependent upon you. And it's with our whole bodies an act of worship to him. Also, fasting isn't, it's not religious at all. It uh, sounds very religious. It sounds like a very religious thing to do. It sounds like a mark of a religion. Um, but Jesus says here in this passage that we don't fast that it might be seen by others. 
Religious people, their preoccupation often is having their actions seen by those around them to gain approval from people or to gain approval from God for him to see their actions and say, well, look how holy I am. Surely I get some sort of reward because I'm so pious, because I'm so mighty. And for other people to admire us because of what we're doing. But really, to pray and to fast is our own acts before God. We don't win any favor from God out of it. It's not about us trying to prove ourselves. And people may be impressed, but it says, Jesus says in this passage that if you want people to be impressed, maybe they will be, but that'll be the only reward you get. They might be a bit impressed with you, but to be honest, stuff found in my experience, that doesn't last very long. You know, you can impress some people and then the next day they're not thinking about you anymore. It's very shallow and empty and hollow. Really, fasting, fasting is about God. Fasting is about coming and enjoying him. Just carving out some space in a hectic, busy life and saying, this time, this moment, God, it's for me to come and enjoy you, to come and know you. I was talking last week, if you were here, I mentioned very briefly a quote by this guy. He said, fasting is indeed feasting. When we have learned well to fast, we will not suffer from it. It will bring strength and joy. And now, it doesn't mean that somehow something uh, incredible happens and you stop feeling hungry, but the reality is when you come and fast, you come and you, you devote this time and energy and you get rid of everything else and you just say, God, I just want to come and enjoy you. I want to feast upon you, God. I want to come to your banquet, what you've laid out, and I want to come and enjoy you. And also, fasting is, in a way, it's actually about mission. You see, in the church, you see moments uh, in the church through the, the Bible, people like Nehemiah, uh, the Paul, even Jesus himself, at the start of their ministries, took time to fast, took time to, to come to God. Not because, not because there's anything about fasting in itself that gives you come some kind of amazing power, but because at the start of anything, which is why we want to spend some time at the start of this term, praying and fasting, at the start of anything that you're about to do, you want to say, God, I'm dependent upon you and you alone. And when you fast, any energy and strength that you have is kind of just stripped away. And little by little, you just get weaker and more and more helpless. And it's just an act of saying, God, for this mission, for this purpose that you set before me, only you can do it. It's what Nehemiah did. It's what Jesus did. It's what Paul did at the start of their ministries. God, this is all about you. I can only do this, God, if you turn up. This is only going to happen if you move. I'm reliant completely on your strength. Now, you might think, okay, I get the point. I understand fasting, I understand prayer. But when are we gonna do something, right? If the church just locks themselves away and prays all the time and never speaks to anybody, nothing's gonna change. And people ask me regularly, and it's a good question, people say, Matt, what's, what's the vision of this church? What are we gonna do? When are we gonna do something? Which is a very valid question, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we do that, I just wanna take a few steps back. Um, and just have a little bit of a look of, of the, the city that we, that we live in. Another person who took a, on a kind, of, a kind of a fast was John Lennon. 
Have you guys heard of John Lennon? I hope that you have, otherwise we're going to have to throw you out of the church, because that would be a disgrace. John Lennon from the Beatles. Okay, there we go. John Lennon, when he, he got married to Yoko in, uh, I think it was 1969, part of their honeymoon, they went to Paris, and then they came to Amsterdam. They stayed in uh, the Hilton Hotel on Apollo Land, which is just the other side of the park. Some of you probably cycle past it on your way here this morning. And they undertook a, a bed-in. They stayed in bed, and they invited the world's press to come and join them. They stayed in the presidential suite, and they said, from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., you can come into our bedroom. So the press were very interested because they thought, well, they're on the honeymoon. Who knows what's going to happen? So the press turned up, and there's John and Yoko sitting in their pajamas with uh, signs above their head. I think one said world peace, and the other said hair peace. And they, they sat in bed for a week, and they were, they were protesting. It was, it was their kind of fast. They were fasting against being out of bed, I guess. And they were trying to make a political point, a statement about peace. A few years later, John Lennon wrote this song, uh, Imagine, which is perhaps his best song that he wrote when he wasn't part of the Beatles. Um, I'm sure you've heard this song, a very famous song. And in that song, he describes, he kind of gives out almost his vision of what a world at peace could, could look like. And he kind of sings about what a world without war, without borders and divisions, what a world without religion, what a world without God could look like. And he sings this song about it. He, he sings, uh, I think one of the lines is something like, imagine all the people sharing all of the world. And it's quite a simplistic song, but it, 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 for many people it's, it's kind of like an anthem. Uh, for many people in our city it would be an inspirational thing of what it is to, to live a life which is... Uh, what people would describe as progressive. <laughs> You're progressing to a society. He's talking about a future utopia. He's dreaming about a perfect world. And many people live in that mentality that if somehow we can make everything more equal, if we can give people more information, if we can educate people more, if we can get rid of all the injustices in society, we can get to this kind of, uh, kind of utopia and that's what people sort of dream of, whether they're aware of it or not. This kind of individualistic, progressive society where somehow we can get to this state of perfection. That's what many people in our city would be pursuing after. It's what politicians will often talk about. And sometimes what we're progressing to isn't very clear, but in a way it's, it's kind of an attempt to, to sort of build a, a kingdom of God without God. John Lennon is singing about this perfect new kingdom where everybody's at peace, where everybody's in relationship with one another. And he's kind of singing about the kingdom of heaven. He's kind of singing about God's kingdom. But in it, he's sort, the, the verses talk about, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell, imagine there's no religion. He wipes religion out of the equation. He wipes God out of the story. And what people are trying to do is they've wiped religion God, Christianity, out of the story of our city, the nation we live in, and people are, are dreaming and want from their heart, they're desiring a kingdom of God without God in it. And there's this idea, if we can release every individual into their personal freedom, 
If we can educate everybody enough, we can deal with all the mess in society. All the human brokenness can be solved if we just work harder together, if we just educate everybody, if we just whip everybody into shape. And it's based on this belief that for human beings, we can do anything if we're just given the space and permission that human capacity is endless, that we can do whatever we want, that we can be whoever we want, that nobody gets to say you're this or you're that, but we can achieve and be whoever we want to be. And if, if everybody in society lives like that, then we'll achieve this kind of state of utopia. And part of this belief is that religion is false, that God is dead. Um, and if religion has to exist, because I guess we live in a, in a, if we are to live in an equal society, then there must be a place for religion. Then it has to sit over there and not give any of its opinions and not affect anything else. This might sound maybe a bit bleak, but that's pretty much the story of our city in many ways, of where it's got to. And Amsterdam is a city that a writer called James Gleck said, he said, it's a great city that has shaped the soul of the world. What people believe here, what people teach here, flows out and it affects the towns and cities around. It affects other people. It has kind of an upstream effect. What happens upriver flows down and affects other things. What people believe here, what people teach here, affects out. And we have this movement that believes these things. That if we can just kind of everybody get together and live this sort of progressive, liberal, individualistic lifestyle, that we can reach this sort of human perfection. But the thing is, it kind of mis misestimates a few things. It, uh, it overestimates one thing and underestimates another. So it kind of forgets that humans aren't God. Humans aren't God. Surely that sounds obvious, and I'm sure everybody would admit that. But what happens is, if you, take, if you take God out of society, if you take God out of a belief system, then what ends up happening is that people replace it with another God. Normally people with themselves. If you take God out of your life as the center of your life, the center of your life will become yourself. <laughs> You'll do what you want to do. You'll obey your own moral code, your rules, your, the way you want to live. If you're not following Jesus, then you're going to follow something else, and that most naturally will be yourself, and that's what happens with society. Without a God to follow, we, can, we either follow what we want to do, or we raise up other leaders, politicians or celebrities, and say, well, they've got a plan. We'll follow them. We'll do what they say. We'll go this way, believing that somehow they might have the answer, but forgetting that we're sinful, that we're broken, and that we make mistakes. Actually, many people are realizing that they look around the culture around us and think this, any idea of reaching this state of godless perfection is, is now impossible. That dream is in a wreck on the floor, because you just have to read the news. You just have to talk to your friends and see the hurt and the pain and all the mess that happens in the world, all the brokenness, and realize that we've, we've, for the last few generations, cities like ours have tried to do it our way, and it's not worked. They've tried to make life work by our rules and principles, 
and rejected God, and in many ways, it hasn't worked. And we, we've underestimated, we've overestimated ourselves, and we've underestimated God. It was 135 years ago that Frederick Nietzsche pronounced that God was dead. <laughs> he said, God's dead. There's, a, there's some graffiti, I think, in France, where someone wrote on a wall in big graffiti, God is dead, Frederick Nietzsche. And then a few years later, someone else wrote, believe, wrote beneath it, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he kind of believed that the, um, that the world no longer needed God or the idea of God for morality, for truth, for any sort of values to follow, that God didn't have a place in society anymore, so he's dead. And it, 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 to many people, it, it looks like that's true. To many people, they, they believe that God is dead. Many, many people in our city believe that. I find it all the time, because people will say to me, oh, why are you here? You know, you're not Dutch. What are you doing in our city? I mean, I don't say it like that, but that's basically all they're saying uh, in a polite way. And I'll explain, oh, we, we moved here to start a church. And, and people's faces are amazing. The vast majority of people just don't believe me. <laughs> What? Why would you? The church is dead. Nobody, people don't start churches anymore. People close churches. That's what happens in our country. Every week, two churches close in the Netherlands every single week. People don't come start churches. Churches close. And people don't, the church doesn't have a place in society anymore. That was decades ago. You know, this, the church that met in this building closed down. The congregation left in 1977, 40 years ago. And the building was then derelict. And that's true for Christianity in Amsterdam, that it was 40, 50 years ago that it, it kind of ended, that churches were closing, that God was pronounced as dead and didn't really have any place or role anymore. People would describe our city as post-Christian. I'll sometimes talk about it being post-atheist. To be an atheist, you have to have reasons why God doesn't exist but most people in our city don't have any reasons why God doesn't exist because they've never thought about it, because no one's asked them. It's never been put before them. They've never really had to think about it. So they're not really atheists because they've never really rejected God because why would you reject something that's already dead? Only a tiny percentage of people in our city go to church, but yet here we are. <laughs> here we are. 40 years later and there's a church alive in this building again. And I think God isn't dead, right? We believe that. That's why we're here. God isn't dead. Across our city, new churches are starting. People are coming to faith. God's doing something in our city, and God isn't dead. And we believe that our society needs God dramatically, needs Jesus, needs the church. Now, let me just say a little kind of... The side point about this, I'm saying all of this um, because we're here for this city. We're here for Amsterdamers. That's what this church is about. We're not an expat church or an international church. There, there may be people who are part of this who have moved here as expats or as internationals. I think at the last count, we had something like 17 different nationalities in the church which is amazing, but we're not a church just for people to gather and live private 
lives as Americans or Australians or English or Scottish or French or South African or whatever else and just live their separate ways. We're a church that's here for this city. And we're international because our city's international. So we've got 17 nations, but there are 180 different nations represented in the city. So we've still got a long way to go. And hopefully one day we'll have more and more and more people joining us to come and worship. And if you think, oh, I'm not sure that's me, I'm not sure I can call myself an Amsterdamer, then I would provoke you to become one, right? Become one. It's not that difficult. A friend of mine moved from South Africa to Washington, D.C. in America to lead a church there. And I listened, I was interested in what he was going to say. I listened to a, a sermon online that he gave, and this was about two weeks before he moved. And he was talking about the United States of America as though it was his country, as though he was, as though he was American. And I thought, hold on a second, you don't even live there yet. How can you talk like that? But I found it provocative to think, hold on a second, I live here. <laughs> I, I pay my taxes. I have friends. We live in this city. I'm as much an Amsterdamer as anyone else is. So I'd encourage you to engage with the city, involve yourself, get to know people. Don't just live a kind of secluded, separate lifestyle, just being basically still English, even though you're in a different city. It's fact the English people are famous for doing it. We, we go on, uh, English people go on, go on, if you go to Spain this time of year, Spain's full of English people, and they go to the beach, and, and, and then they'll go and they'll find like an English bar, <laughs> and they'll drink English beer, they'll eat fish and chips, they'll eat English food, they'll go home, they'll watch English TV on Netflix, and then they'll fly home after their week. And you think, why did you bother going to Spain? Right, it's just because it's hot. And you, we don't want to live like that just living separate individual lifestyles. Come and engage with the city. Come and get to know this city. And I guess also be aware that all of us, I believe that you're here because God has called you here. You didn't just, I don't believe in coincidences. You just didn't arrive by accident. You're here because God's called you here and he's called you here to be part of his mission to this city. We're all missionaries. There isn't some special elite force. We can't just say, oh, well, we'll just leave it up to these special people to do all the telling people about Jesus. That's the job for all of us. We're all missionaries. We're all evangelists. Jesus has sent all of us to this city. I remember when uh, Winfield and Laurie joined the church about six months ago, we had them around for a, a drink one evening, and Winfield said, yeah, I'm a missionary to my workplace. I want to tell people, I want, to, I want people to, to see how I work, that I follow Jesus. That's what I'm here for. I thought, brilliant. We need hundreds of Winfields, right? <laughs> hundreds of people who, who go into their workplace with that attitude, who go into their street and their family with that attitude. I'm a missionary to these people. Maybe just one person. But I'm a missionary to that one person. And if we all did that, then, you know, who knows what God would do in our city. And... Just to briefly say, obviously you might think, well, if we're here for Amsterdam, why don't we speak Dutch like Len was doing earlier? Why do we speak in English? Well, partly we believe that for what happens in this, a lot of what happens in the center of our city anyway is very English speaking. There's a lot of English speaking that happens. Uh, most Dutch people speak better English than I do. So it's a good way for us to get started and a good way for us to gather people from all across the city. But as time goes on, I think we will 
more and more do things not in English. There'll be some parts of the city where we'll wanna, we will want to start maybe midweek groups or Sunday services where Dutch is going to definitely be the best language to use. Other parts of the city, it might be Turkish that is the best language to use. We want people to be able to worship God in the language of their own heart. Um, and it might be more and more what we do here in this building on Sunday needs to become more and more Dutch to help us reach this city. I'm sure we'll always have a, a very strong element of English, but we need to be aware of the city that we're in. So, we, we live in this kind of secular, liberal, progressive society. We're here for this city, as we've been talking about. We're here to reach Amsterdamers. But it's important to think about how we do that. Because the church, through history and across the world right now, churches will adopt different kind of postures, different positions in how they interact with the world around them. So, on one hand, the church can the people of God can retreat. You can retreat away, which has some bad points. It's, it's almost as like Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6, you can become quite religious and pious. You can become judgmental of the world around you, live without any real connection with anybody else. But there are some good points as well. If you retreat away, you can build really strong community. You can build a group of people that really love each other that do life together. You can live faithfully to what the Bible teaches. But many, many Christians will do that. They'll retreat away into their own world and they'll listen to Christian music and watch Christian TV shows and their whole world becomes like a Christian bubble and they have rarely any real interaction with the world around them. And churches can do that. The other extreme is, is from retreat to relevance. Um, so on the positive side, Churches try and engage with the realm around them. They love people. They serve people. They uh, kind of integrate into society. But there's some bad points as well because lots of times churches end up compromising what they believe. They put the mission before the message. They put their activities before Jesus. And parts of what they believe begin to get kind of watered down. And we think, well, if we're really going to reach the world around us, we can't talk about this bit of the Bible and maybe that bit of the Bible isn't true anymore. And maybe this bit, we should just forget about that bit. And we begin to kind of reshape what we believe to make it palatable to the world around us so they can, they can like us. And churches can, can flip between these two extremes, between retreat and hide away and relevance and throw ourselves into the world and forget everything else. Um, I think there's a third way, resilience or as I've renamed it, faith-filled gospel resilience. There's a third way of which we can react to the world, which I think is how uh, God's calling us as a church to be. And this idea of resilience is what I'm going to finish up talking about this morning. And this idea of kind of faith-filled gospel resilience means, first of all, that we're absolutely determined to pursue God before anything else we're absolutely determined to pursue God. Before anything else that the world says, our friends say, our family says, we put God first, Jesus first, before anything else. He's our primary focus. And we read the Bible and we don't just throw no bits away. And there will be bits of the Bible that will be challenging to you that you think, I'm not sure I know how to understand that. 
but we don't abandon it. We believe actually that the word of God is, it stands far above the word of society, which changes from week to week anyway. Churches that abandon what the Bible believes end up constantly abandoning what they believe because they try and follow what society is saying and society doesn't really know. So each week it says a different thing and the church runs around trying to catch up. But yet God's given us his word, this forever eternal truth. And we can build our lives upon it and we're not going to run away from that. Even when it says difficult things, we're not going to run away from it. We're going to let our lives be shaped by it rather than try and reshape it into what we believe. And also we believe that the church is God's plan A, B and C. That the church is God's kind of urban dream. This is his little kind of colony of heaven that God set up here on earth. We're his people, his body. We take the church seriously. We don't say, oh, well, the church, people said to me when we moved here, church planting doesn't work anymore. If you want to reach people, the church isn't the best way to do it. That's, that's I, I ignore that. We believe that God's plan for this world is the people of God, that he sent us together on his mission to fulfill his plans and purposes, that we get to build a kind of a, almost like a new city within our city, a new people within the people around us to display his glory. We get to build, I guess you could call it like an Amsterdam 2.0. <laughs> we get to display like a kind of a, a, a new, better version of what community can look like. We get to show a better version of what life is like. We get to say to people, Jesus is better than everything else in society that tries and pulls your opinions, that tries and draws you away, that tricks your heart into believing things. Jesus is better than all of that. He's, he's just far better, and that's the, the, message that, the message we have to preach to our own hearts every day, but the message we need to say to our city again and again and display it with our lives. Jesus is better. We live as a community that believes that and displays that because... It's so important in a city where, you know, I guess it, many people in our city uh, need community desperately, right? You, you just look around you and you think, you guys are so lost and lonely, and yet we have the answer. <laughs> we have the answer that people, people are searching for. Many people are, in, in a society that's always trying to improve itself and get better, people are driven by this desire to achieve more and to do more. Young people are, are, are driven by this desire to pursue crazy hopes and dreams because they believe that if human capacity is endless, they can do whatever they want. And people chase after all these dreams and it, it just leads to anxiety. Many people around us are just um, uh, horribly anxious. So something I read this week, I think it was 61% of university students suffer from anxiety. That's stunning. The, the, the average age now of someone being diagnosed with depression, uh, in 1960, the average age of someone diagnosed with depression was 45. Today, the average age is 14. That's just stunning. Hmm. And you, more, more than ever, um, our city needs this, right? The people of God the church more than ever and that's why God sent you here and us here 
to take that message, to love our city, to display something better, but always standing utterly firm on what we believe and what we hope in and our dreams. And I guess part of the way that we do that is, um, is almost you know, this, this idea of, if we went back, I won't go back a couple of slides, if this idea of um, retreat and um, uh, relevance is on the one hand, people who retreat, it's kind of they're inf- afraid of sort of being infected. I don't want to get the kind of the lurgy, the disease. I don't want to get infected. I don't want my kids to get infected about what the world thinks. Um, and that's often the problem with people who pursue the idea of relevance, that they do get infected. That, that what they believe about Christianity gets kind of diluted and, and changes because they've kind of almost been infected by the world. But the, idea, the church is supposed to do something different. We can almost be the infection ourselves. I read a book a few years ago about a guy who wrote about the plague in London. He talked about how it spread, about how from uh, just by people not going about daily hygiene, that the plague spread across London in 16 something or other. Thousands of people were killed, but basically people just weren't cleaning up after themselves properly. And then the disease just spread almost overnight. And he, he, the way he described it was he said, uh, uh, the epidemics create a kind of history from below. They can be world-changing, but the participant, participants are almost inevitably ordinary people following their established routines, not thinking for a second about how their actions will be recorded for posterity. And the, the church is supposed to be a bit like that. It's not just about one or two superstars doing something amazing. It's about dozens, hundreds, thousands of ordinary people, very ordinarily, living lives in worship to God day after day, and just making that our lifestyle, just making that how we live. And little by little, by that, we, we kind of, infection is probably the wrong word, we become the antidote to society. By little by little, by being, the Bible describes it, we're like salt and light, we just little by little change things. We're like the yeast in the dough. By little by little, we just bring change into the world around us. And the more people we can have in our city, little by little, just in a very ordinary way, loving Jesus and loving each other, loving our friends and neighbors, we begin to see change around us. Okay, I've been talking for a while. So it's important to, to say that, you know, we'll, we're going to love our city. Of course we will. We'll stick to serve our city. Of course we will. But all of that is, is always secondary to, to worship. We've always got to remain in him, remain in God. If, if, the church, if the church isn't on mission, it's not really a church. Not really. But if the church isn't worshipping Jesus... It definitely isn't a church. It's definitely not. If the church isn't putting that as its primary purpose, it's not really doing its job. And that's our primary purpose as individuals, as a, as a family together, is to worship God. And more and more, that's going to be a struggle for us to figure out how to do that. We live in a world where we're bombarded with information, which makes it difficult for us to follow Jesus. 
And if, if our worship is just an hour and a half on a Sunday, it doesn't really, that's not going to cut it. Because 24-7 you're being preached at. So you can moan about me preaching for 40 minutes or whatever, but you're getting preached at all the time. So we need to fill our lives with the pursuit of God. We need to meet and pray together. We need to make time in our lives to follow him. Let me just read this quote, which is helpful, by a preacher called Tom Wright. He said, where no attention is given to teaching, to constant lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with their minds shaped by whichever social pressures are most persuasive, with Jesus somewhere around as a pale influence or memory. And we don't want to build a church where the memory of Jesus just kind of fades away, which is what has happened in our city. The memory of Jesus has just sort of faded away. We want to live as a church who are out, we're so devoted to Jesus that there's no way it can fade away because it's, it's what we're consumed by. That's why we want to start this term with two weeks of prayer and fasting because we want to say before anything else, we want to be consumed with Jesus. Before we, we even worry about what's going to happen to our city, we worry about, not worry, we're concerned about, we're focused on worshipping Jesus, making him the centre of our lives and of our hearts. We want a, a bold, rigorous faith uh, that's completely dependent upon him. Um, let me just read these verses from John 15. It says, this is Jesus talking here. It says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the wine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As John 15, that started, that's, that's the mission of the church, to abide in him, to remain in him, to believe wholeheartedly that apart from him, we can do nothing. At the end of John 15, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming to, and, uh, coming to be a witness to us, of, to Jesus, and making us witnesses for him, empowering us with his spirit. And you might think, you might think, if you're not a believer in Jesus here, um, or maybe you've just walked into this church for the first time, you might think this all sounds a bit extreme. That <laughs> We all sound a bit crazy, or I sound a bit crazy. I hope it does sound a bit extreme. I hope it does. Because too often we put up with a Christianity that's just pale and boring and nothing. Christianity is supposed to be extreme because it's supposed to be something that is, is extreme you give your entire life to. And that's what following Jesus is all about. It's something of utter devotion to him. And you might not understand that, and that's okay. I'm not just trying to pound that into your heads. That's something we know because Jesus has come to live inside of us. And we've understood this wonderful beauty of the gospel, that Jesus has died for us, he's rescued us, but he's rescued us for a purpose for relationship with God. He's rescued us so that we can abide in him, that we can remain in him. He's rescued us so we can call him our father and we can know him 
So we come to pray and to fast because we think, I just want to know God because he's my father. What else would I do with my life than come and enjoy being with him forever? It's, it's just the best way to live. Okay, we're going to stop and then um, Joe's going to lead us in a song. We're going to share communion together. Um, why, don't you, why don't you just stand to your feet for a moment? Let me just pray. God, we, we want to live we, we want to live lives that follow you, Jesus. We, we want to say that again to our own hearts, that it's just, it's just better. It's just better than anything else. And even, even this week, you might have things, you can think of things where your heart has run after something else, thinking that that might meet your needs, that that might make you just feel satisfied, that that might make you forget pains. But we know that it doesn't work. It's just, it just lasts a moment and then it fades away. The only thing that lasts, the only thing that's really worth living for is you, Jesus. We want to just declare that from our hearts that you're better. You're better for us. You're better for our city. And we, we want to submit our hearts again to you and say, God, I'll follow you, whatever the cost, whatever it takes. We want to take this communion, this meal together as a declaration that whatever it takes, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, because of what you've done for us, because you died for us, because you shed your blood for us because your body was broken for us not because I have to but because I want to I want to live a life of devotion to you now thank you Jesus